so uh, a couple days ago, I was going for a walk, and there was this little guy, probably about four or five years old, and he was on his lawn, hiding behind this little mound of snow, and as the traffic was going by, he was lobbing these snowballs towards the cars. And uh, he, was a little, he was pretty little, so these were little tiny little snowballs, but I'm sure in his mind he was just like hurling these. And the snowballs weren't quite reaching the street, and he just kept trying to hurl these balls for. And I could just imagine his little mind just waiting for the satisfaction of this explosion of snow on the side of the... And finally, he lobs this little snowball out, and I found myself cheering him on. You know, come on, little guy, you can do it. And finally, this tiny little snowball just grazes the side of this minivan. And you just see this kid. Yeah! He's so excited. I did it. Now, can you imagine if uh, one of those little snowballs broke a side view mirror and the car pulls over and the car, the driver gets out and starts yelling at little Timmy. Hey, what do you think you're doing? You wrecked my side view mirror. Now, I was cheering little Timmy on, and, but it wouldn't be appropriate for me to go over and say, Timmy, your sins are forgiven. You can go. Uh, because it's not my car. That's not how forgiveness works. You, you can only forgive things that are done against you. You know, Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross not because he was a great teacher, not because he was doing miracles, he was a miracle worker, not for any of these reasons. The religious leaders put Jesus Christ on a cross in 33 AD because he was claiming to be able to forgive sin. And you can only forgive sin if you're God Almighty. And Jesus Christ was clearly claiming that he could forgive all sin, anybody's sin, because all sin is ultimately toward him. The, bru- the beauty and the brokenness of this world that we live in, and all of the un- unloving and unjust things that cause for this world of ours to be an unloving place to be, the endless catalog of sin of all humanity, even though we're doing it to each other, is ultimately against God. Because in his greatness and in his generosity, he created this world to be a beautiful place where as a humanity, we would exemplify as his image bearers love and grace, and we would cultivate civilization to his glory with him at the center of it. That was the design. And we have destroyed that through all of our various sins. You have your list, I have mine, the things you've done, the things I've done. But as a humanity, our sins are interwoven. We can't just simply say, well, what I do doesn't affect the rest of the world. Because throughout the generations, uh, the world in which we live is a culmination of all of our brokenness that has together contributed to this world that we're in. And we're all in desperate need of forgiveness. We've been going through the Lord's Prayer, and we've been taking line by line to examine what Jesus is inviting us into. This week we look at the line which reads in Matthew chapter 6, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so this morning we're going to go to God's Word, a supporting text in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, as we examine this call to forgiveness. And to ask for forgiveness, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and my sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a king who went to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 
And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before the master. And he, he said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the master's servant had compassion on him. I'm sorry. And the servant's master had compassion on him and he canceled the debt and he let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. And he said, pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and he begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. And instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and they told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the unforgiving servant in and he said, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. This is God's word. Now, as we consider forgiveness this morning, we do well to remember that Christian faith is not uh, simply a trip in morality, right? Because there's other faiths that talk about forgiveness, and you can be a person of no faith and see the value, uh, humanly speaking, of forgiveness. And so all of these things can be true. There's lots of different motivators and different worldviews about forgiveness. So for us as Christians, what is our motivator? Here in this teaching by Jesus, we find that forgiveness is linked to being his follower. It's linked to a new identity. The ethic of forgiveness, all Christian ethics, are linked to our new identity that is in him, our desire to resemble him as a result of really understanding the gravity of what we've been given by him. Forgiveness is this call into congruence with our our new nature. And when you consider the Lord's Prayer, I've been saying every week, it begins with worship. And praise is primary, and, and that is purposeful. Because it is from our worship, and it is from our, you know, wonder, and this renewal that we get this big, this big vision for why we walk out any Christian ethics. It's, it's from wonder, it's from love, it's from this desire to, to imitate the one who has saved us in grace. It's a big vision for new identity, new humanity, new nature that we have been given in Christ, united by Christ, and indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. Uh, how many of you growing up ever heard uh, a parent say to you, um, you know, my house, my rules, or you argue with them a little bit and they get a little bit exasperated of trying to explain their reasoning and they just say, because I said so, right? We've all heard that. Some of us as parents have all got exasperated at one point and said that, right? Now, how many of you being told these are the rules, you know, just said, oh, well, that's reason enough. Say no more. I mean, that's not satisfying to any of us. We needed a much bigger vision for why we should do anything. I want you to imagine some of you who, many of you here, who are uh, young parents, you've got young kids, uh, you're not raising your children to comply with your ethics on the basis of the ethics. Really what you want as a parent is you want them to live into the the family values governed by the word of God because of their love for you 
and ultimately their love for God as you raise them to have this sort of this love and this wonder of uh, who this uh, loving God is, this compassionate king um, that we see here in this, in this scripture. And so what we see is it's not, it's not this command to forgive. It's not simply my house, my rules. We've got this loving father who wants us to flourish and he knows the ways in which we must flourish. And one of the ways that we flourish is through forgiveness. And so this parable illustrates a few things. We see, you know, first this, this compassionate king who is generous, who gives undeserved forgiving grace. We also see the torment of living an unforgiving life. We see the absurdity of forgetting this uh, forgiving grace. And in the end, we also see this fate that awaits all those who harden their hearts towards this grace or live totally unmoved by the, the grace of this uh, compassionate king. So Jesus showcases right here in this parable what the gospel is and what it, what it does. What it is is forgiveness for you, and then what it does is it compels and animates forgiveness through you. There's a flow in this parable. The flow of the parable is the flow of the, is the, flow of the entire Bible. The flow of the parable is guilt, grace, gratitude. The flow of the entire Old Testament is guilt, grace. Now I've saved you in grace. Now live, live, according, living, live now in gratitude. The flow of the entire New Testament, the flow of the gospel, guilt, grace, gratitude. And so what Jesus is um, unfolding in here is this huge picture uh, for what we have been given, for who we are united to, that actually pulls us out of the moment to actually give us not only the pattern for forgiveness, but the power uh, to actually walk in forgiveness. And so Jesus has us pray in the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Um, this big picture of forgiveness in his grace and through it. So I want to just take some time this morning to explore this premise and this power for forgiveness. Now this chapter 18, the end of it is this parable of the unforgiving servant. But the way it all started was the disciples showed up and they said, Hey, Jesus, you're talking about your kingdom and we got ideas for what that kingdom ought to be. And they saw it as a political release from Rome. They had no concept of the cross. They weren't, their ideas were temporal. They couldn't conceive of the eternal. And they said, we want to know what we must do to be great. So Jesus is like, okay, you want to know how to be great? He takes a little kid and he puts the little kid in the middle of them and he goes, be like this. And all of us who have children know children are not innocent. Children are dependent. So this whole thing starts with, oh, you want to be great? Be dependent. Be like this child. And then from there he flows into like, and listen, by the way, don't offend these little children. Don't live in a way that is inconsistent with the love and the grace of God that causes little kids to be confused. And so after he talks about that, then Matthew 18 gives us a pattern for how do you deal with offense? I mean, what do you do when you get offended? What does this dependence look like when you walk it out here in the church community? When somebody hurts you, offends you, abuses you? I mean, what do we do? And so we get this picture and the, pa- and, and, and the pattern before this parable is... Well, first you go to that person yourself. And if you're unable to go uh, you know, by yourself, if it happens to be in uh, such an intense situation, you would be unsafe to go by yourself. Jesus says you bring somebody with you. And if that doesn't work, you bring more people with you. And if that doesn't work, you know, you're bringing now the church is involved and the eldership is involved and leadership is involved. The picture that you get before you get to the unforgiving servant is this picture of Jesus trying to care for 
Those who've been offended, those who've been hurt, how, how are we supposed to sort of handle all of this? And then it culminates in this parable, which we're now sort of looking at, this power and this pattern for prayer. And the, and the reason why this is so important is because the first thing you see in verse 22 is Jesus said, Peter comes and goes, shall I get, forgive seven times? And Jesus goes, not seven, 77. So this is like a picture of radical lifestyle of forgiveness. Jesus is not inviting any of us into a radical lifestyle of repeated hurt, repeated uh, abuse. Oh, just stay in abuse 70 times 7. If they keep hitting you in the face with a hammer emotionally, just keep going back 77 times. That's not what Jesus is teaching because when you look at the flow of the, the, the whole chapter, he's like, bring some people with you. You need to be in a place where you are cared for. Uh, you need it in a place where, there, where forgiveness can happen, possibly reconciliation can happen, which is another matter. But this is the picture of this 70 times 7 radical forgiveness. He's not inviting us into an ongoing pattern of being a doormat and repeated hurt and danger. And uh, it's an extreme way of life. 70 times 7, it's just constant ongoing forgiveness. How is that possible? There's this uh, Hebrew scholar named uh, Dr. Tim Mackey, and uh, he pointed out, uh, to me, through a lecture I was listening to, um, that there's one other time in the Bible where this, not seven, 77 shows up. Only one other time. It's in Genesis 4. A guy named Lamech, who's a descendant from Cain. As you know, Cain killed his brother. And the descendants of Cain were not good. And they built a city that was not good. And you read about Lamech. He is not good. And Lamech is, Lamech is so vengeful. He says, ah, Cain was avenged seven times. But Lamech... 77 times. And so Lamech has this whole thing of like, I will live this radical life of vengeance and, no, and I, nobody gets any mercy. I will just live my way and I will do things my way. This, is in, this intense person. And Jesus actually uses that, not seven, 77. And he uses this in the, in the picture of forgiveness. He says, oh, you've got to live this radical life of incredible forgiveness. And so from this picture of this ongoing forgiveness, we've got to ask ourselves, how in the world do you even do it? Well, when you skip to the end and you look at verse 35, 35, Jesus says, you do it from your heart. Well, that's impossible unless I have a new heart. I can't live in this radical, ongoing place of forgiveness uh, with my frail heart. I need a new heart. But the reason that uh, I bring that up is because quite often when we talk about forgiveness, um, we talk about it like uh, it's reconciliation. Well, in this passage, forgiveness you do from your heart. Reconciliation requires two hearts. And the problem is, you and I don't have any control over other people's hearts. So it's one thing to forgive, which we are called to forgive, commanded to forgive, because that's something that we do from our heart. And it's another thing to be reconciled to somebody, because now that's two hearts. See, reconciliation requires honesty and acknowledgement and humility from the person who did the wrong. If you wrong somebody, if you hurt somebody, if you offend somebody, you can't demand reconciliation. You can't yank Matthew 18 out and say to your, the fellow person here at Redeemer who hurt you and offended you, say, I demand reconciliation. The Bible commands we've got to be friends and we've got to work this thing out. You don't get to demand that. What you need to do is, to borrow from Martin Luther, is you've got to enter through the, through the low door of humility by bowing your head. We can't demand reconciliation from people. So we just got to be clear about what Jesus is commanding us to do and not to do. 
Because often this can be used in really abusive situations where, where uh, people can feel trapped. And Jesus is, of course, not calling us to that. But he is, without apology, calling us into this incredible forgiveness. And this forgiveness that we do from our heart, which, of course, the, the hearers at that time are thinking, how in the world do I do this? I need a new heart. You and I are thinking, how in the world do I live in ongoing forgiveness towards people who have wronged me? I need a new heart. This is precisely what Jesus is provoking, is to turn to the only one who can actually give us a new heart, that united to him. This is one of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, this forgiveness. And so we've, we see as, as the, as the uh, parable rolls out, there's this incredible debt. Jesus uses a little bit of humor. It's so massive, the 10,000 talents. Um, one talent was multiple years' salary. So now you've got 10,000 talents. So Jesus picks a number that's, astronomical and it's impossible to pay it back and so everybody then this servant the king does something that's actually just and he says well you got to work to pay it off so you and your wife and all your children you're going to work work my land for the rest of your natural lives to pay off your debt right it's justice he can do it you have the debt you owe the debt this is justice pay the debt but this, com- this compassionate king, you, l- listen to what happens. This, this unforg- or sorry, the first servant, the unforgiving servant, he gets down on his knees. He's like, please, just give me more time. I'll pay it back. You don't have enough lifetimes to pay it back. That's the point of Jesus' parable. Right? The listeners are like, this is multiple lifetimes of debt. And this guy's like, just give me more time. What this provokes us to see is, you and I don't need more time. We need grace. You and I can't be like, just give me more time, God, and I will clean myself up, and I will be living such a, 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 a level of holiness and sanctification in my Christian life that all of heaven's going to give me a standing O. You don't need more time. You need grace, forgiving grace. So that's what the, the first thing that sort of happens here. So notice what the, this king's response is. The king's response is, I'm going to have compassion and forgive this thing that you absolutely have no means of doing yourself. And it is from this radical, undeserved compassion. So notice, first it's justice, and then it's mercy. This is this compassionate king. Totally just for him to work his whole life to pay off the debt. But he's given mercy, and it's totally undeserved. It's scandalous. It's a picture of the gospel. And so in verse 27, he, he forgives the debt, which is this beautiful reminder, anticipating the cross, that absolutely everything that God requires from you and I, he provides for us gives us the, the, the perfect record of Jesus Christ and unites us to him. And so Jesus presents this unconditional grace and forgiveness as the, as the power, presents it as the pattern for our forgiveness for, uh, for others. And so the wonder of the cross is this. You know, as I said, forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Forgiveness says you're free to go. Reconciliation says, come on into my life. Well, at the cross, God not only forgives you, but reconciles you. So that you and I aren't, it's not just, okay, you're free to go, don't mess up again, because you and I surely will. It's you're free to go, but you're also free to come. The beauty of this justification, the beauty of being reconciled to God. And this is a powerful image that we're, uh, that we're given in the, in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so... If we can't do this, if we can't forgive, there's a reason for that. And that's what this parable is provoking. It's provoking the fact that if, if we can't see that our need for forgiveness uh, is daily, uh, but we have the forgiveness that, 
that we actually need because Christ bore all of our judgment, then when somebody else in this church offends you, uh, gives you attitude as the years stick on in our church community and somebody hurts you, gossips about you, something occurs here. If you forget that Christ bore your judgment, then it's going to be very, very easy for you to relate to the other people in this room or in your families uh, with incredible self-righteous judgment. Because that's what the unforgiving servant in the, uh, in the parable ends up doing. He ends up relating to the guy that owes him 15 bucks and a hot dog. He ends up relating to that guy like he, like he somehow is, is justified in this. Right? There's no humility. There's like a self-righteousness in the way that he's throttling uh, this other servant. He's got this, verses 28 through 30, he's got the chokehold at the ready. He's forgiven and then he chokes the guy and then he, and then he throws that guy in prison and and, uh, you know, when we forget all of our guilt, you know, we, we think our intentions are pure. Notice that what he said to the king and what the servant said to him was exactly the same. Only in his mind, it's like, oh, we're not the same. It's not the same thing. That's exactly what you and I do. We prefer everybody else would sin the way we sin. <laughs> we want everybody to judge our intentions, but we judge everybody else's actions. Grace for me, judgment for you. This is the temptation. See, what does he do with the king? The king's like, you owe me a bajillion dollars. It's going to take you 500 lifetimes to pay it back. And he's like, all I need is more time. He's delusional. Just give me more time. I'll pay it all back. This guy owes him 15 bucks and a hot dog. And he's like, just give me more time. And he's like, no. It's a, he, they're saying the same thing, but he's like, no, you and I are not the same. And so you see, what's undergirding the ethic of Christianity is that the cross is the great leveler. It's that standing next to Jesus Christ, you and I are all the same. There's not a sliding scale before the throne of God. And so when we recognize the radicality of what we have been given, this is the power. This is the pattern for the forgiveness and for, uh, for uh, the releasing of others uh, from the emotional debt, not relating to them in, in such a way like they owe us something. And when you think about righteousness... And your righteousness, the righteousness of your neighbor. It's important for you and I to remember that when the Bible talks about a righteousness, it uses legal accounting terms like accredited. Your righteousness was accredited to you. Right? It, it never, it's like a declaration. It never talks about our righteousness like it's something that's like in us. And see, that's the problem with the unforgiving servant. Is he had something accredited to him. But then he turns around and he relates to somebody else like, no, this, this state that I am in right now was not accredited to me. I am rich and deserving of you to pay this debt back to me. So it's a total discounting of everything that he has uh, received. And so that's why he has got the guy in the, cho- the, the, uh, the chokehold. And so there's two pictures here of forgiveness and unforgiveness and what they do. One is mercy and one is irrationality. The, the, this king, he says, first you've got to work off your debt. That's justice. But then he hears this ridiculous cry, and he's like, you need mercy. So then the, this king, this glorious king, chooses mercy, and he forgives the debt. But what the servant does is he acts in total indifference uh, to the fact that he was forgiven of the debt. And then he chooses irrationality by throwing the guy in prison. So just imagine the pictures. Imagine you're the first, you're the first listener and you've all had to work for somebody to work your debts off. As moderns, you're all doing that anyways, right? We all have debts. They just didn't have a system 
in the ancient world where they were like, oh, okay, well, you know, you, you get a loan, it's secured against your house, and you pay prime plus one, and then you, know, you work your debt off. I mean, in the ancient world, it was like, you come, you live on my land, and this is where you live now until you pay your debt off. So what, the un, what unforgiveness does is it makes us irrational. The servant in his state of vengeance throws the guy in, the text says, so he throws him in prison until he can pay the debt off. And all of the people listening to this are like, well, wait a minute, how's that going to work? Because prison is not a great place to pay off debts. I mean, how are you going to do that? It's irrational. What, what this teaches is, what, what Jesus is getting at is the unforgiveness. Like, it's now it's no longer about the money. It's vengeful. It's bitter. There's this, there's this wanting to exact the judgment and the pound of flesh. This is what unforgiveness does in our hearts and in our lives. And so it's like that adage that many of you have heard people say, unforgiveness is like drinking that poison and you're waiting for the other person to die. And that's a great metaphor because that's what's going on here. It makes them vengeful and irrational. And so this, the prisons of unforgiveness, these are our attempts of sort of exacting our own, veg, our own veg, uh, vengeance. Uh, but in the end, it's us who are tormented. And as you look at the parable, you know, we're tormented in the moment emotionally because when you don't forgive somebody, they move on with their life and then they live rent-free in your head, and you and I have all done this, and you go to bed at night having imaginary arguments with these people, and then you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, and you're, like, you're tormented emotionally, but, there's, but eternally there's a picture of this eternal torment when we reject the grace and the forgiveness of God, and we sort of relate to others as though we didn't receive the forgiveness of God. We see this picture of this eternal torment. But, you know, our hearts, as they are melted by God's forgiveness for us, this is what motivates. That's why the Lord's Prayer begins with, pra- with praise and worship. You can't omit the praise and omit the worship and just get right to the business of forgiving because that's not going to work because the ethic of forgiveness is not enough to motivate forgiveness. It is when your heart is melted that it becomes motivated. It is why we have to preach Christ and Him crucified Sunday after Sunday because all of our souls need it. I can't bypass the majesty of Jesus and go, you already know that because you guys have been saved a good long while. So we'll just put Jesus over here in the corner and let's just get about the business of walking out ethics. Because friend, you will fail miserably and I know that because I know me better than I know you and I fail miserably. I have my moments, just like you have your moments. But by and large, standing next to Jesus the verdict would not be good. And so we must revel and marvel in the great forgiveness of what we have received in Jesus Christ and let that motivate uh, our forgiveness. And so I close, uh, I close our time this morning um, with this. You know, the, this forgiveness is not saying that whatever was done was okay. The injustice, the offense, the abuse, not okay, never okay. Forgiveness does not make it okay. Forgiveness is not admitting and confessing that it is okay. What forgiveness is, is forgiveness is uh, saying that I know that in Christ I have been forgiven of everything. So I am not going to tether myself to you emotionally and relate to you like you owe me something. You don't owe me anything. I forgive you. And that is an ongoing process of walking in forgiveness, depending on what that offense, uh, the depth and the gravity of what that offense was. But it is releasing people in this way. Forgiveness is by the grace of God, releasing people from your judgment and trusting in the just judgment of a compassionate king. 
Not an ogre in the sky that wants to just burn you to the ground. A compassionate king who knows you can't pay your debt and is at the ready to forgive you of your debt when you confess it to him. We, we trust, we release our judgment to God's divine judgment. Jesus Christ lived that perfectly loving and just merciful life that you and I ought to be living, but we're not. And he died that atoning death. And on the third day, on the resurrection, it proved that his claims were true. That he could forgive sins because he was God Almighty. Christ our Savior. And so as far as the east is from the west, so far our sin has been removed from us from Jesus Christ. And to borrow from Spurgeon, once God pardons you, there is no end to that pardon. So may the Father's forgiveness for us and his grace propel ongoing forgiveness for each other by his grace. Let's pray.